Thanks for listening to this Table Church Sermon Podcast. We're in a sermon series called Baggage, Finding Freedom from the Weight We Carry. We're addressing some heavy things like depression, anxiety, trauma, addiction, and guilt in order to learn God's heart for those who hurt. Our prayer is that these sermons would help you and encourage you. Please feel free to reach out at hello at tablechurchdsm.org. Enjoy. Good morning, church. My name is Josh. Sorry, I was waiting for the response. Yeah, okay. <laughs> My name is Joshua Bometa. I have the great privilege of reading the scripture this morning. Um, I'll, be doing it, I'll be doing it in Swahili and English as well. Um, yeah, so we'll get right into it. Give me a second here. Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Verse 4. Furaini katika buwana sema furaini. Verse 5, upole wenu ufamike kwa watu wote, buwana anakaribia kuja. Verse 6, msifadhaike juwe jambo lolote, lakini katika kila jambo mjulisheni mungu haja zenu kwa kusali na kwamba pamoja na kushukuru. Verse 7, na amani ya mungu ambayo inapita ufahamu wote italinda mioyenu na niazenu kwa kristo yesu. Now to English, rejoice in the Lord always, I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guide your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Joshua. Seems appropriate, doesn't it? On Pentecost Sunday, that we'd have multiple languages spoken in worship. But, you know, more... Um, to the point, really, uh, we just want to be a church that reflects heaven. And the Bible's clear that one day every, knee, every, every tribe and every tongue and every nation is going to gather around the throne of God, worshiping him. And that's our heart for Table Church, that that would be the case here. And so I'm grateful. Hey, as we get started here today, I want to let you know... Um, we have our VBS coming up this summer. That stands for Vacation Bible School. And last year was our first time doing it, but it has become, you know, one of the most, probably one of the coolest outreaches that we do. There's a whole lot of kids there, uh, not only from Table Church, but also from the neighborhood. We're going to do it at the Sosnowski's house in their backyard. They're just a couple blocks from right here, right here in the Drake neighborhood. And so it's a wonderful way to serve our neighborhood in our community. And so it takes a lot of hands on deck in order to pull this thing off. So I'm, I'm asking for volunteers. We need people there for the actual event, which is August 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. But if that doesn't work for you, we also could use people to help us get ready for it, make set pieces and that kind of thing. And so if you're willing to help in any capacity, just write VBS on your connection card. And my wife, Natalie, who's our children's ministry director, will get in touch with you about how you might be able to help. All right. Well, it's good to be back with you in person. If you were here last week, you know I was on a video because I had COVID, and so that was unfortunate. But I'm good to go now, and I'm just thrilled to be back in worship with you all. So our first year in ministry, Natalie and I were invited to help chaperone the youth missions trip to Guatemala. I was the worship pastor at the church, um, but they asked if we would come with the youth group to help on the trip to Guatemala. This was the first time I ever left the country. 
up until that point in my life. I've now traveled lots of places, but up until that point, I had never left the country. It was also the first and last time that I've had the privilege of sprinting through an airport in order to make it through my gate, just like in a movie. It was like Home Alone. We're running through the, the airport, and I remember we're, as we're running, like, I've got these 10 or so high school kids. There was this freshman girl, really short, really small young girl, and this is on our way back from Guatemala, coming back to the States, and so she has not only her stuff, but like all the stuff she bought. Like, I remember she was carrying this hammock, you know, along with everything else, and, and, and she's struggling, right? And so I'm just, I run up alongside her, I just start taking stuff out of her hands just to try to help her, you know? And so pretty soon I got my stuff and I got all her stuff and I look like a cartoon character running through the airport. Thankfully, we all made it to the airplane on time. Uh, but this is a picture of many of us as we go through our lives. We have this thing we're calling baggage in this series, the heavy things that we carry with us through life. But sometimes life moves so fast that we don't have the time to stop and deal with the stuff we're carrying to put the baggage down, to ask ourselves if we really need to be carrying all this or not. We just kind of keep accumulating stuff and running as hard as we can trying to make it to the lazy boys tonight or to the weekend or to vacation or whatever it is. And so I hope this sermon series that we're calling Baggage is an opportunity to stop and take a good hard look at what you're carrying. To be able to evaluate your life and say, is, is there something that I, can, I just need to put down by the power of God? It's got to surrender or relinquish this thing. Today we're going to talk about anxiety. Anxiety is so widespread today. I'm not even going to give you the statistics because it's like everywhere, you know. Like so many people are struggling with anxiety right now in our culture. It's safe to say it affects us all. Even if you're the most carefree person in the world, somebody close to you, I guarantee you, somebody close to you deals with anxiety. Which means we're all kind of caught in its web. Our passage today from Philippians, I think might be, it might be the one that I recommend people memorize more than any other passage of scripture because it just is a, a tremendous weapon against the enemy's schemes, against the lies of anxiety. And so I want you to listen one more time to verses six and seven from our passage in Philippians four. And I'm gonna kind of read it emphatically a bit and slow just so that you can kind of catch just how remarkable this passage of scripture is. Here's what it says. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a remarkable promise in scripture. And this passage gains even more power when we understand it within its historical context. And so we're going to unpack this passage from a historical perspective for a second here. The ancient world, just like many cultures still today, operate off a, a little bit of a different grid than we tend to, um, we, I don't know, Western North American white people generally do, okay? Um, and that is that these many cultures, ancient world as well as today, uh, they think in terms of honor and shame. These are the two categories that often come to their minds in terms of navigating the complexities of life. They think in terms of honor and shame. I'm not saying that we don't at all. Certainly, shame is a thing in our culture. 
but it, it, it works quite differently and it's, it's much more common in these other cultures. You see, in, in, in the ancient world, in the biblical world, much of a person's life was about securing more honor for themselves and for their family. In fact, you would spend most of your time trying to secure honor, prestige, status, for your family members or for your ancestors or for whoever else in your family. You wouldn't necessarily do it for yourself as much because that's a little too on the nose, right? But if you can bring more honor to your family, then of course that raises your honor stock as well. So it's all, it literally is almost like a bank account. You're constantly trying to deposit more honor into the bank account of your family. And so this means that life was very competitive back then. You're born into a world where you are immediately at odds with the other households in your town in this never-ending race to secure more honor than them. And we know through archaeological discoveries, historical work, that the city of Philippi, where the letter of Philippians was written to, the city of Philippi was particularly uh, bad in this regard. Like the, the race for honor was particularly strong in ancient Philippi for a number of reasons. One scholar, Philip Essler, says virtually any social interchange such as business affairs, politics, sport, literary contests, dinner invitations, or even arranging a marriage constitutes an arena in which people strive to enhance their honor at someone else's expense. In ancient Philippi, we have discovered literally hundreds of inscriptions from the area around the city that portray one family member ascribing honor to another family member in order to secure more honor for the family unit. And so they would write, you know, something about, you know, Uncle Ted and all of the virtuous things that he did. And he, you know, he paid for this road to be paved in the city. And he was a general in Caesar's army. And all, on and on and on it will go about Uncle Ted and all the amazing things that he did. If someone in the family dies, you would erect this large stone monument. If you're among the, you know, the elite families, you would erect this large stone monument and you would have all of the honorary titles and virtuous deeds of the person listed so that when people walk by, they'd walk by and they'd say, wow, the Wisemans, they are really something. You know, that, that's the goal. Right in the middle of ancient Philippi, the heart of the city forum, we have excavated Giant stone monuments that these elite families built bragging about the accomplishments of their deceased family members. And then just a few feet away, there would be another huge stone monument from another family talking about all the things that they did, trying to one-up the family next to them. And on and on it would go. This is the way it was. You're in this constant competition to prove that your family is the best. Everybody else is the worst. That's the world you're born into. That's what you're trained to do from day one. And that might be why Paul encourages unity in Philippians more than any other letter. And you know what? He talks about unity in pretty much every letter. But Philippians especially, he's just hammering, hammering. Every chapter, it seems, is talking about unity. Be of the same mind, he says. Be unified. Get along. Why? Because in Philippi, the race for honor and status was especially competitive. So we can see now how radical the call of the gospel was. What is Paul trying to do in these, these cities that he planted churches in? He's literally trying to pull people out of their family units of origin. He's trying to pull them out of it and say, look, now this is your family, this ecclesia, this church. This is now your family. 
There, it's hard to think of anything more countercultural than what Paul was trying to do with the Christians. There's nothing else to compare this to. He's pulling them out of their families of origin. He's saying, look, there, you now have a name that you honor higher than your family name, and it is the name of Jesus. To be a Christian in ancient Philippi meant you were displaced. And so when Paul tells them to rejoice and to lead with gentleness, he says, to not be anxious about anything, look, these were not just religious platitudes. When we hear the verse today, we think, oh, Gee, that would be nice. I'm going to try not to worry so much, you know? No, this, is, this requires a supernatural strength for them. When Paul promises a peace of God that transcends all understanding, this was not just a rhetorical flourish. It was a promise that they would have access to the actual power of God to allow them to do things that up till now seemed absolutely impossible. Listen, by the power of God, we must refuse the lies of anxiety. We must refuse the lies of anxiety. We must learn to identify the lies of a spirit anxiety wants us to believe, replace them with the peace of Christ. I've seen this in my own life many times, going through some anxious moment, and I'll summon this verse I'll try to, like, literally in my mind and, like, see myself just lying this thing before Christ. And, and I'll give thanksgiving like it says in the passage. God, thank you for the roof over my head. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my job. Thank you for this, this church. Lord, thank you for the air in my lungs. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And it's like this peace that just comes out of nowhere, comes and just lifts the burden off my shoulders. It's happened lots more times than I can count in my life. Listen, I believe that our communities, that we are living in an enduring state of trauma. And we don't know how to handle it. The chaos of COVID and politics has created a world where we don't know who we can trust. And this is different than 24 months ago. It was bad then. It's worse now. We live in a world where we are a little bit less sure who we can trust, who will accept us, if we become vulnerable, if they'll attack us, if they'll use it against us. Bottom line, there seems to be this spirit of anxiety over us. I wonder if you can feel it at all. That we are just a little bit more angry, a little bit more anxious, a little bit more unsure than we were before. One of the best ways to combat something like this is to simply call it out, to name the lies that it tries to get us to believe. And so that's what I'd like to do today. I got three lies that anxiety wants us to believe. I'm going to replace it with three truths, that spirit of peace, that the peace of Christ wants us to know. The first one is this. Anxiety says that we should be insecure about the things you can control. So the things that are in your sphere of influence, anxiety says, hey, be insecure about that. It could be taken at any moment. You could lose it. That's your territory. You've got to guard what's yours. You know, you've got to hold tightly to it, lest something happen to it. And so we get territorial. We get controlling. We get demanding. Every event has to go perfectly. Every email has to be written perfectly. Can't even talk to a person live on the phone anymore because I'm so scared about what I might say. You know, like we have this, 
this sense that everything has to go perfectly. Anxiety breeds insecurity over the things we did because we, we could have done it different and you know, maybe that would have been better and if that would have been better than what I did, I did the wrong thing. If I did the wrong thing, then I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, then I'm a bad husband, bad father, bad mother, bad Christian, bad employee, whatever the case may be. You see how it snowballs. This happens all the time. I call it Monday morning. I'm like, ah, that sermon was terrible. <laughs> There's probably some heresy in there. Yeah, that was heretical. Uh, I bet that, in, that offended that person, I'm pretty sure. You know, like all the time. This is the cycle that we go through. This is the chain that anxiety leads us down. It wants us to be insecure about the things that we, that we can control. Here's what the spirit of peace says. It says, be diligent with what you can control. Be diligent. Let me explain the difference. Diligence means that you're not lazy. You take care of business. The things that have been apportioned to you by God, you don't bury your talent, right? We use our God-given capacities to be the best parents or spouses or employees that we can be. Diligence takes to heart Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. It says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, it says. But here's the crucial difference. Diligence at least in the life of a Christ follower, the motivation is not to make me look good. It's to make God look good. I'm not looking at myself. I'm looking at God. And you know what's important about that? This is, it's this. There is honor in hard work, and there's grace for mistakes. When you're working for the Lord, he honors hard work, and there's so much grace for the times where you're just like, ah, I blew that one. Sorry, God. It's okay. I was a worship pastor for a number of years, and I would always kind of tell the worship teams, I'd say, hey, here's my expectations. You work hard, you practice, you prepare, you come to rehearsal ready to go. We, when we're in rehearsal, you know, we're not goofing around, we're making it happen, we're getting it done. But you know what? As soon as the worship service begins, if you lay an egg, if you mess up a note, just so you guys know, I screwed up today. I prayed too early. We had a whole other song afterwards. I was supposed to do that after. But you know what? It doesn't matter anymore. Did you, did, did you put your, your time into it? Did you, did you take it seriously? Did you not just kind of ignore it? You know what I mean? Were you diligent with it? Yeah? Well, then whatever happens, it's for God. It's for him. Don't worry about it anymore. This is our humble offering, a sacrifice of praise to God. And if we're diligent with the things that God gives us, then you know what? However it turns out, that's up to the Lord. Because here's the thing. You can control what you put in, but you can't control the outcomes. You can prepare for that meeting. You can prepare for that test, but you cannot control the outcomes. When a diligent person goes to bed, they know that the outcomes of the day belong to God and they have peace with that. And so the question, you know, did I do all the right things? Did I say all the right things? Did everything go right? That's, it's over, you know? We don't worry about that anymore. The question we should ask ourselves, did I apply myself in a reasonable manner? Did I apply myself in a reasonable manner? Did I do it all for God's glory? If that's the case, then let the chips fall. I honestly sometimes tell myself, or ask myself this question, am I being lazy in my job? Is there a, is there a conversation I need to have with somebody? Is there an area where, you know, something's falling through the cracks and I, I just got to suck it up, find, recruit somebody, or whatever the case? You know, am I... Uh, sloughing off in my responsibilities to study the word and to try to apply it 
in good ways for the sermon. Like all of these different things that I consider important for my job. And I, and I think sometimes, am I being lazy? And sometimes there are things that I need to, to deal with. Sometimes there's areas where I'm like, Phil, you gotta level up here, you know? You gotta have that conversation, gotta whatever. Um, but usually it's not the case. Usually I can say, no, I, I th- I'm doing my best, you know, within the reasonable amount of time that I have. So I'm going to bed now, right? Good night. I'm not going to worry about it anymore. Here's the next lie of anxiety. Anxiety says that you must be unique. You must be unique. Let me explain where I'm going with this. Uh, philosophers, scholars, and thinkers, they always try to analyze time periods in history, right? And always kind of come up with labels for them. Well, we have a label for the season, the era, the epoch that we're living in right now that many scholars have come to use. They call this time that we're in right now, we call it the age of authenticity. The age of authenticity. That's the time that we live in right now. Let me explain what that means. The age of authenticity means that our age is motivated by the call to build an original life. It means that in our age, you are to live out what's inside of you. That you are to slough off the demands of tradition, ancestors, expectations, culture. Do what's true for yourself. Do what you feel right here. Be authentic. Be the real you. The great sin of our age of authenticity is to simply just go along with the masses. See, the hero today is the one who does not conform to the expectations of society, but follows their heart, chooses their own adventure. This is what it means to live in an age of authenticity, and we all live and breathe this air. Look, virtually every Disney princess movie since I was born is dripping with the age of authenticity. Whether it's Ariel leaving her family to live on the surface, Elsa singing her ballad of authenticity, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Or Moana realizing the call isn't from beyond the horizon. She says it isn't out there at all, it's inside me. In other words, meaning, purpose, this call, this fullness in life that I pursue, it ain't out there, it's right here. I just gotta realize it. Isabella in Encanto asking, what could I do if I just grew what I was feeling in the moment? Fullness in life comes from what's here. And expressing that is the consummate action in the age of authenticity. Now, we're going to talk about this more in future sermons. I, I just, as I read more about it, I just am like, man, this is the discipleship project for our age, you know, like to realize what this means, the way it impacts our lives, and how we can follow Jesus in the middle of that, I think is really, really crucial. But one thing I want to say is that the age of authenticity isn't necessarily all bad. There's lots of good about it. We'll talk about that in future weeks. But one of the good things is the way that it kind of promotes and emphasizes the individual, you know, like the individual matters. Doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, how much you've got, what you've done. Like the individual matters in the age of authenticity. That's good. We like that. But there's plenty of things that we as Christians need to identify and ask, is that the way of Jesus or not? A philosopher named James K.A. Smith, he points out how there's this burden now in modern culture to express your authentic self. He says, what they don't tell you is how utterly exhausting that can be. He teaches at a college, and he connects this with the rampant mental health challenges that he sees among the 20-somethings 
He said there's this, there's this, this tidal wave of pressure to express your uniqueness all the time. The shadow side of this call to be authentic and unique is that it is a solitary journey. It leaves us exhausted and it leaves us alone. And I believe that we will eventually see a shift in culture as people kind of recognize their need for community and belonging, right? But right now, it's the individual, individual stands alone expressing what's inside of them. And that, that is the key to a meaningful life. But that is an exhausting way to live sometimes. And in fact, what often happens is in our, in our effort to kind of express the true us, we end up kind of collapsing back into conformity. And, you know, you might not look like your parents, but you sure, sure do look like your friend group, right? Like it's almost inescapable sometimes. It is just exhausting for us to be always under this pressure. Now, the spirit of peace says something different. It says, you are the divine image of God. You, that's where your worth comes from. That's who you are. That's where your identity is anchored. And you know what that does? That frees you from proving your worth all the time. You already have it. You already have more divine worth than any other accomplishment can ever earn. Your worth is secured in Christ. You've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. You were made for royalty. You can stop worrying about it so much now. That's freedom. Like this burden that we carry to be our authentic, original, true selves, all this stuff, like it is a heavy one. But you know what the gospel says? It says, hey, you can be free from yourself. And you don't have to worry about yourself so much. Wouldn't, doesn't that sound kind of nice? You, have to, you don't have to look at yourself so much anymore. You don't have to constantly curate your image anymore. You know why? Because you are the image of God. And it don't get any better than that. When we realize this, we are free to stop looking at ourselves so much. We can turn our gaze towards something that's way more beautiful, which is Christ. In a self-obsessed culture, Christians don't have to be locked into the prison of self. We are free to simply love God, love others, without thinking about ourselves all the time. I think that that switch right there is, that will alleviate a lot of anxiety from us. The third and final lie that we want to identify is this. Anxiety says, have stress about the things you can't control. We've talked about the things you can control. Be insecure about that, right? Now have stress about the things that you cannot control, it says. We all exist in a world where we are continually drinking from a fire hose of bad news that we have no control over whatsoever. In fact, the day that I wrote this sermon, I grabbed my phone just to see what are the last three like, news notifications I got. Here's what they were. Within just a few minutes of each other, coronavirus cases and hospitalizations up in Iowa. Top Des Moines private employer Wells Fargo cuts jobs as mortgage business sputters. War's effects widen as Russia cuts gas supplies. Those are just the first three things that popped up. We haven't even gotten to the climate change stuff. Like, holy smokes, that's apocalyptic, right? Like, no wonder we're carrying so much anxiety all the time. We perpetually stand in front of an onslaught of bad news. No wonder we're experiencing this collective anxiety. Look, a spirit of anxiety wants to kind of subtly convince us that all those things are our burdens to bear. That they somehow belong to us. But they don't. Now, am I saying we shouldn't be concerned? No. But I would like to distinguish between Stress and concern. In stress, we take things upon ourselves 
in a way that's not helpful at all. It doesn't fix anything. And it's actually more than just an emotional feeling. It literally has a physiological effect on you. Stress does. When I went through church planter boot camp, one of the things that they drilled home was you got to listen to your body as a sign of stress. And they said you wouldn't believe the crazy physical maladies that church planters experienced the first two years. Just weird stuff, you know. And look, I'm not going to give you my medical history, but it's true. It's true. So what does the spirit of peace say? The things that we can't control. It says this, surrender the things you can't control. I remember after we had our firstborn child, Bella, how terrifying everything was. Like, I am now responsible for this little, frail human. I remember just putting her in the car seat for the first time. I'm like, are you kidding me? You want me to drive around this metal capsule at 50 miles an hour with this child in here? No, I'm just going to walk home. <laughs> like, it's terrifying, you know? Our, our, one of our first appoint, appointments with her pediatrician, he was an amazing doctor, and he just made this kind of off-the-cuff passing comment that I don't think he even really meant it, you know? He, wasn't even, he was just talking, and, um, but it stuck with me. And it helps me so much. He said, essentially, you know, once you lay her in your crib at night and you've done all the safety protocols and you shut the door to a room, don't worry about it anymore. You've done all you can do. It's like, uh, I feel really bad, not worrying. But that's true, you know? Like, I have, we've done everything we can do. Why would I carry this with me? At some point, we got to learn to surrender the things that we can't control. Be diligent with the stuff you can and then surrender the stuff that you can't control. Look, we swim in an ocean every day that has a current all of its own. There's so much in life that you can't control. The things you can control in life are a grain of sand on a beach of the stuff you can't control. This is the heart of our verse today. It's to acknowledge the fact that while there is so much we can't control, it's our future is in God's hands. And not only that, but we have access to a supernatural peace that can guard our hearts. And you know what? When you are actually at peace, when you're not riddled by anxiety, I believe that you will be more effective in the world to actually deal with these things, to actually make a difference, to actually help come up with solutions for the many problems that we face as a culture and as a race. So maybe for you today, what's that heavy thing that you're carrying? Maybe for you, it's, you've got some grown children, and you know what? They're their own people. They're making their own choices. But boy, do you carry that heavy load about the decisions that they make. Maybe it's the economy. Maybe it's waiting for the results of a medical test. What is it for you today that you're just carrying that's heavy? I would like for us to go into a time of prayer and I think that we can surrender these things. Um, I'm just going to read the end of our passage one more time. It says, in every situation, do not be, sorry, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. I find it interesting that it pairs anxiety with thanksgiving. Like, it's like the antidote, you know? With thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So can we do that?
take a moment, think about what is it that you're carrying? What's the, what's the baggage? What's the suitcase? What's giving you anxiety right now? Close your eyes. And in your mind's eye, just place it in your hands. Hold it out before the Lord. Well, Jesus, forgive us for the times that we hold on to the things that you literally died to free us from. Forgive us for the times when we cheapen your cross by saying we have to carry all the burdens, all the heavy things. Forgive us for that, God. And Jesus, we speak to the lies of anxiety with thanksgiving. We thank you, Jesus, for the air in our lungs. We thank you for every beat of our hearts. We thank you for the beautiful sun outside. We thank you for the green grass. We thank you for this church and for the friendships and for the community that's here. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for eternal life. We thank you for your spirit in our hearts. We thank you, God. We thank you, God. We thank you. And now, Jesus, would you take this burden from us, this burden that we don't have to carry, and yet we are, and would you, would you deal with it? Would you deal with it in the way only you can? And Jesus, would you send your spirit, a spirit that brings peace? Holy Spirit, would you guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus? Seal us, bind us up into you, Christ, that we would be guarded by the name that is above every name, the name before which every knee will bow, before which every tongue will confess that you are Lord, the one who stands at the right hand of the Father, the one who holds all of creation together right now in his providential hands, the one who blesses us with every breath and every beat of our hearts, and the one who is coming again. We surrender it all to you, God. And so take our anxiety and break the chains of these lies in us, I pray, that we might be for the world in a way that we never were before. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.